packed Empire podcast this week. We review eight, count them, eight films, including The Amazing Spider-Man, Killer Joe, and Stories 24. We welcome four, count them, four guests into the Empire pod booth, including John Hamm, William Friedkin, and Stellan Skarsgård. And we discuss all the week's movie news, which means, very sadly, we have to pay tribute to the great career of the late Nora Ephron. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, a film podcast that likes its pie heated, but we don't want the ice cream on top, we want it on the side, and we'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it, if not then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real, if it's out of the can, then nothing. I'm joined, as ever, by three magnificent colleagues, let's introduce them now, because when you realise you want to spend the rest of the podcast with someone, you want the rest of the podcast to start as soon as possible. So it's hello to Pod Staple, Helen O'Hara. Hello, it's actually pronounced Podstable. It's Podstable, sorry, yeah. It's in, it's, in, it's in Derby, isn't it? Derbyshire, I believe, I believe so, yeah. yes. Derbyshire. Uh, and returning for the first time in a while to the podcast, the amazing, unstoppable hair machine that is Ali Plum. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Hello. Where have you been? I've been in uh, in a bin outside the office. <laughs> I wonder what the smell was. And thank you for bringing the smell in now. That's a pleasure. You. It's grand. And uh, making a second consecutive appearance on the podcast, which is something we'll have to do something about, is Empire's second poshest journalist. He went to the same school, is this right, as Kira Knightley? Uh, yeah, but I should say for her that it was I, I went there long before she went there. <laughs> I'd you, certainly left by the time she started. You were ushered away from the gates when <laughs> yes. she was there. It's Ollie Richards, in case you were wondering. Uh, now, Ollie, you're a massive fan of uh, When Harry Met Sally, so... Yes, I genuinely think it's one of the greatest screenplays ever written. It is, indeed. So, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, who would not agree that uh, Nora Ephron's death is uh, very sad? But I think the thing that is particularly sad is that um, she is not someone who I think... Her career wasn't over. No, not She at all. had a lot left to do. And I think one of the... One of her best things that she wrote about, not actually in films, but co- kind of more uh, in essays uh, collected in books, was getting older. Mm. And she wrote so funnily about it. So the fact that, you know, we won't hear what she would have said about the fact that genuinely getting old. She was only 71. 71, I know. It's crazy. Um, so, yeah, it's a real shame. But she did, She, I mean, she made some good films, but I do think When Harry Met Sally is a timeless film. Yeah. And there yeah. are very few people who can claim that in a career that they'll they created something that I think will last indefinitely. Well, already my, my intro, was, in, case you, in case you weren't aware, was studded with quotes from Harry Met Sally. I mean, it's just a magnificent film, which which she she wrote. I mean, mm-hmm. Rob Reiner directed it. Yeah. But it, 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 it feels like a Nora Ephron film. When you watch her other movies, Sleepers in Seattle or, you know, uh, You've Got Mail, there, there are definite similarities there. Certainly, yes. Yes, she had a very specific voice. It's kind of very... Uh, it's sort of very optimistic but wry she was nothing was even though all those films ended very happily they're not I don't feel like they were cheesy in any way there's no easy route she's very she's yeah. quite sarcastic I think she just got a really nice dry sense of humour with When Harry Met Sally particularly there's uh, no contrivance which is, uh, I, I think, something that, that dogs modern romantic comedies. We talked last week about the five-year engagement when characters just come out of the woodwork. For just no so, good reason. For no good reason, just so Jason Siegel or Emily Blunt can, for, for a second, flirt with them and put their, their main relationship in danger. And I don't really think there's anything like that in When Harry Met Sally. I mean, it's, it's one of the great, not just romantic comedies, but great comedies. No, and you think of, I think you think of any of the supporting characters in there, they've all got terrific material as well. It's not mm. that there's these two terrific characters and then there are some people around who are just one dimensional and there to kind of facilitate things they're just they're all terrific roles there's, I don't think there's a scene in there which hasn't got a classic quote in it 
It's just such yeah. a superb piece of writing. Yeah, I, even even I think her lesser films have have great moments. I mean, Julie and Julia, um, not the best film in the world. I think we can probably all agree. But some of the scenes, especially with Julia, let's be honest, the Meryl Streep bits are by far the mm. best. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, like, there's a scene, for example, where she gets a letter from her sister saying that she's pregnant. And it's just heartbreaking. It's an absolutely astonishing scene and it's completely underplayed, but you know exactly what's going on in everybody's life at that time. And part of that was obviously Meryl Streep, but a huge part of it as well is the way it's written and put together. Really, really well done. And she had this phenomenal life as well, didn't she? I mean, she was yeah. uh, she was married to Nick Pileggi, who was the guy who uh, co-wrote Goodfellas. Uh, but she had previously been married to Carl Bernstein. One of yes, the, uh, and wrote a, wrote a best-selling book and then screenplay based on their divorce. She'd yeah. worked in the JFK White House as an intern, although she said she was probably the one intern who wasn't hit on by the yeah. president, <laughs> which I guess is some kind of badge of honour. She did actually write uh, a draft of All the President's Men. It mm. wasn't the one that was used, but that was the one that got her... Um, noticed in uh, by Hollywood, mm-hmm. and then she wrote Silkwood. Wow, fantastic. had you ever met her? I mean, because no, I've never met her. No, I would have loved to. Um, but she is someone. Like, if you only know her by films, I'd really recommend picking up any book she has written, uh, particularly the ones that are collected essays. There's one called "I Remember Nothing," which I just started reading again today. It's so funny. Isn't that the one so- that finishes? I read a list of her likes and dislikes. So things she'll miss, things she would miss, and things she wouldn't miss. Yeah. Uh, in death, um, and it's just this really wonderful, wry, very, very humorous list. Yeah, it's uh, it's so simple. I won't I won't bother trying to re- trying to uh, read any of it because you have to read the whole thing for it to for it to work. But yeah, pick up any of it. She was so funny, just really, really clever. And a female screenwriter in Hollywood, which is and a female director in Hollywood, mm. which is so rare, yeah, and so unusual. It is, and it's still rare and still unusual. I think she had a huge advantage in that she was very much a people person, which a lot of writers and directors, to be honest, kind of aren't in some ways. You know, uh, and I, sp- I think especially as a woman trying to get ahead in, ahead in Hollywood, you can't be uh, a troubled genius. You can't be an antisocial genius. You have to be a really likable genius as well. And I think she was absolutely. No, I don't think towing the line necessarily, but I think she was, you know, because she knew who she was. She wasn't sort of pandering to anyone. But I think she she was very much a really. uh, a person who got on very, very well with other people, and that made it, you know, possible for her. It's interesting also, you mentioned that list. One of the things on there that she said she will not miss was uh, women on film panels. (laughs) So she was not someone who I think would have put herself as a woman in film. She was a woman who made films and wrote films. I think that's part of, I think, why yeah. she was successful. You know, when Harry Met Sally is a romantic comedy, yeah. but it's not a romantic comedy aimed at women, it's no, a romantic absolutely. comedy aimed at people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think, though, that, I mean, she was a feminist from way back. She, yeah, absolutely. You know, she she was involved in the, the, the really kind of early stuff, uh, early feminist movement as well. Um, so it's not that she wasn't proud of being a woman in film, but more that there were, there were so few of them who were in any way high profile that she must have been asked for those six times a week. Well, I, having from some of the stuff she writes or that she wrote you know, back in the day, mm. as it were, the term she wrote on feminism a lot and it was not all... She was... She would uh, pull up people who she didn't like, who she thought, you know, oh, yeah. these, are, these are feminist icons, but I don't agree with this person. Yeah, which so I'm not, Gloria Steinem I'm not, in particular, I think. Uh, it could be correct. I don't remember specifically. Um... But yeah, she was, I think, what I mean is she was very much her own person. It yeah. was not, I am defined by writing no, stuff uh, for women, sure, it's I'm absolutely. defined by writing. And in yeah. fact, her, her male characters are as strong for me mm. as her female characters. If you think back to Harry when Harry met Sally or Tom Hanks' character in, in Sleepless in Seattle, I mean, that there's that great uh, dialogue between him and Rob Reiner walking down the street talking about The Godfather and yeah. dirty dozen guys movies. And, yeah. and she nails it absolutely, absolutely brilliantly. And uh, Sally Albright in particular, I mean, mm. you know, we're joining on about when Harry met Sally, but 
come on who wouldn't um, is just this great character who's quirky but not defined by her quirks which is something that again infects modern rom-coms where characters are characteristics walking characteristics mm. necessarily yeah and, and I, think, I think that's not that. just I think that's a, a general Hollywood problem I mean you've got you know for some reason the one that comes to mind is that horrible good luck Chuck film where you had Jessica oh, God, Alba yeah. as the dream girl and and the only thing that of course stops her in inverted commas being perfect is the fact that she's clumsy mm. that's, the, that's the closest they come to giving her a character um, and I think you know I think people took, take the wrong message from Sally Albright they think it's it's cool to have you know a neurotic insecure lead in your in your rom-com or your comedy or whatever and I think the message is more that it's okay to have a person mm. in your romantic comedy yeah. or comedy or whatever well the aim of it um, if I'm correct is that Rob Reiner wanted to write uh, not write wanted to make a film where the man and the woman were both as brilliant and buffoonish as each other mm. it's not one is one is kooky the other one is um, sarcastic it's not that kind of thing it wanted a balance which mm. is exactly what it has and uh, I, I read your uh, your masterpiece, your When Harry Met Sally masterpiece uh, for Empire. Review, rather than Re- my piece being a masterpiece. Review. Yes. Well, you know, that's... Yeah. Uh, well, it wasn't going to be... <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a masterpiece, Ollie. Let's be honest here. Um, and uh, you talked about it was such a fine line for her. If her, her dun- uncle died and he was rich, and he, or if he had been mega rich, he was mega rich at one point, and then he lost a lot of money. And yeah, this is this is a story that came from one of her books. So, right. you know, but yeah, it was that she, she was writing it and she thought she'd inherited a vast amount of money, but she hadn't actually. Okay. Uh, so, so she went to screenwriting? Uh, well, she carried on with screenwriting. Yeah. Okay. One last thing about Northern Air it was It was... It was wonderful last night. Not that obviously there was news about her death, but that there was such an outpouring of 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 love and respect for her and her work on on Twitter, mm. which is usually where news about you know people's deaths now now breaks and and spreads very very quickly. But there were there were lots of people going, oh please don't let this be true, you know, you know. And it was it was just very very nice to see the the respect in which she was held. None of yeah. that internet snark that you're so used to. No, absolutely, it was all yeah. genuine. Loved absolutely, it. there was a, there was a lovely, if slightly um, pointed comment I I saw, which said that uh, Christopher Hitchens is about to find out that women can be funny after all. <laughs> Dennis um, Leary, I believe that yes, was, yeah. which was uh, I thought possibly one of the most appropriate reactions that yeah. anyone could have come up with. If of course Hitch is up there. Well, if there's an if there's, if there's, there's not a layer, wow. if there's a layer for him to wow. be, yeah, this wow. went big. I know, crazy, but uh, yeah, Nora Ephron, uh, seventy-one, you would be missed. Okay, now it's time to dip into our virtual mailbag filled with ones and zeros and lovely missives from you lot. Like this tweet from at Beggarsohat who asks, why is Ryan Reynolds making films? It's a little harsh. Oh, it's totally <laughs> harsh. But, but to the point, I guess. Come on, we like Ryan Reynolds here, we? do don't we? like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, he's charming, he's funny, he's smart, you know. He's totally dreamy. He's got a 12-pack, hasn't he, Helen? I haven't counted, yeah, but I'd be like willing you to. you haven't counted. <laughs> He's uh, got, you know, franchises reboot, and uh, yeah. one of them would be, wait for it, Highlander. Yeah. That's happening. He's going to star in the new Highlander reboot. So I guess the reason why he's making films is because people want him to be in films. I mean, I thought Safe House was pretty good. Um, I use that word quite generously, but it was it was fine. He's appeared in plenty of good films. Well, yeah. one thing I'd like to see him do more often is is comedy, because he burst out the scene in Van Wilder, and he was just fantastic in that. And I, I was in one of my first ever reviews for Empire, and I, I, was, I wrote something along the lines of... He's got the, the the physical comedy of of Jim Carrey with the, the comedic timing of Chevy Chase, and he ha- hasn't really capitalised. Now he's been funny in movies, and he's been funny in rom coms like The Proposal and Definitely Maybe, and I guess one of the Green Lantern's few saving graces is the fact that he can can quip with the best of them. But I'd like to see him be properly funny instead of trying to be this yeah, squanders in the change up. Uh, I really hope the change up would see that. We did not see that. 
No. No. Uh, so, sorry, at Beggar's Hat. We don't agree with you. We like Ryan Reynolds. We want him to continue to make films, and we'll be discussing the Highlander uh, reboot in greater detail later on, I believe. Okay, at Eddie Hamilton, who's the man who edited Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class, has a bit of a problem with what he calls Limaxes. Now, if you don't know what Limaxes are, this is the phrase for an IMAX cinema that isn't as big as a proper 70mm uh, IMAX cinema. So, for example, if you live in London, uh, there's the IMAX at Waterloo, which is a proper 70mm IMAX cinema. And then there's uh, IMAXes at Swiss Cottage, I believe, Swiss Cottage Odeon, which are smaller, still bigger than the normal uh, cinema screen, but they don't show the full 70mm capabilities of a, of a normal IMAX. I think they show 2K... Uh, digital projectors they, they use those so they're not quite as good the screens aren't quite as big and the sound quality is not quite as good and people including Eddie Hamilton are up in arms about this are we are we annoyed about this? I've never been to one that is not the only IMAX I've been to is the one at Waterloo oh okay I've been to that Swiss Cottage Odeon it is a nice cinema I mean it really is a nice cinema it's one of those cinemas as you might expect in that kind of you know part of North London which is catering to a uh, Nibbles sir uh, crowd, which is fine, <laughs> but the the screen is essentially just a bit bigger than normal. It's quite kind of uh, up close and personal. There's not much of a pit before you see the screen, mm-hmm. and the seats are comfy. But you don't really feel like you're in an IMAX cinema. You feel no, like yeah. you're in a, in a in a luxury cinema, but not not the IMAX. Well, I saw the Dark Knight um, and a couple of IMAXs when I was living in the States in 2008, and one was on a huge Waterloo style IMAX, and then another one was on what I now know to be a Limax. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the the impact just isn't there. That first shot of the Dark Knight when the, the Batman logo flies towards the screen and then suddenly boom, you have that gigantic Chicago skyscraper just fill the screen. When you're, on the, when you're on a big IMAX, you're going, wow. When you're on a small IMAX, you're kind of going, eh, it's good. It's I mean, pretty good. It's Yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. Mm. I think uh, Limax kind of implies that they're totally terrible. What's bad about it is you're paying the 15 quid or whatever That's the it is. thing. There's no distinction made when you, when you look the up price. the information. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think it should just be clear. I mean, because IMAX themselves talk about the two slightly differently when they're discussing their world domination plans, you know, and I think uh, maybe just it should be made clear exactly what we're talking about and when we're talking about huge, big, massive, tall screen and, and bigger... And it's very nice, but not quite as huge screen. I think people do know the difference because I've been trying to book tickets now for The Dark Knight Rises for a while, and you just cannot book a ticket at the Waterloo IMAX for <laughs> no Love or Money. Uh, but there you are tried tickets. Love? That, uh, I've tried Love. <laughs> wow. I've tried Love in the BFI. It just doesn't work. They tell me to go away. But I believe that The Dark Knight Rises is showing in full 70 mil glory um, at two places in London. One is obviously the Waterloo IMAX. The second place is, weirdly enough, the Science Museum. Mm. Well, they've got proper IMAX. They've they got have proper full IMAX. IMAX there, yeah. yeah, but I didn't think they'd actually start showing Well, they haven't generally, but I think they can smell a gold mine when <laughs> they, they smell can, yes. one. Because I've been trying to book tickets for that one as well, and their website's down. Apparently I, Lucius Fox is working out of it. I booked, <laughs> I booked <laughs> tickets for that. I should say, the worst ticket booking experience I've ever had. BFI, please sort out your IMAX booking system. Uh, but yeah, it was so busy, so busy. And I think I'm now going at about 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> Which is when we all want to go and see a big action film. Blooming freelance. Exactly. In the middle or uh, on the side? Or? They're somewhere. Okay. Somewhere in there. Um, but yes, it was so full. I'm not surprised they're spreading it out to another one. No, absolutely. I'd, I'd like an IMAX in uh, Finsbury Park, please, if you're listening. Anyone who builds IMAXs. Uh, okay, so uh, Neil Harmon has emailed in uh, all the way from Plymouth. Uh, doesn't really matter for emails, does it? Uh, as self-confessed movie fans and movie reviewers, I think he's talking to us, do you all possess a full home cinema setup? If so, who has the largest screen? It's not by screen size, Neil. Honestly. Uh, Neil then goes on to boast, 
I have a 105-inch projector ooh, ooh. with 5.1 surround sound if that starts the ball rolling. When the Oprah coming round, <laughs> I think, for the weekend. Uh, Helen, what's your setup like? Uh, I've got, I think, a 42-inch screen, <laughs> uh, Blu-ray and 5.1. Blu-ray. You've got 5.1? Of course. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I've got 5.1, but also that's the size of my screen. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a phone. Yeah. <laughs> Ollie, what about you? Uh, I'm uh, very unsophisticated. I have a 42-inch screen. Um, well, TV, I believe they're called. T- um, TV, yeah, yeah. Uh, Blu-ray player, and I don't have any kind of special speaker <gasps> setup. No, nor do I. Savage. We live in a society. People. Come on. <laughs> how, can we, how can we write about this stuff? The wires everywhere. I've got a 47-inch screen. Um, uh, Blu-ray. But no uh, surround sound system. I do want one, but I'm not entirely sure my living room would, would, would suit it. However... If anyone is listening and would like to send me a 5.1 or hell, even a 7.1 Toronto Town system setup, then I would be more than happy to test it out for a period of five to ten years. You mm. appalling whore. I know. Ali would probably cut that bit out. I could go for bigger TV. Yeah, big, uh, bigger TVs. I think we could all go for 105-inch projectors. I mean, honestly, Neil, how big is your living room? What are property prices like in Plymouth? <laughs> <laughs> we should go there. Uh, Katie Trainer has written in to say... Having read the review of The Amazing Spider-Man, and she doesn't hyphenate it. Oh, come on. Come on, Katie. Sort it out. Uh, in this month's Empire, I noticed particular praise was reserved for Emma Stone, taking this into account and considering what I think are fantastic performances from her in The Help. Yes. Easy A. Yes. Zombieland. Yes. And Crazy Stupid Love. All three. Do the pod team think she could be her generation's Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock? Sandra Bullock. Definitely. She's yeah. got the same incredible likability immense charm and a sense of humour I think comic timing which you know not to slag off Julia Roberts' comic timing which is very good but Sandra Bullock's is better and Emma, Emma Stone's is better maybe certainly up there with, with Sandy's I think yeah. certainly she's got yeah she's got the Sandra Bullock feeling of like not being too perfect as well yeah. I think which you couldn't say of Julia Roberts she is yeah she's willing to sort of snort with laughter occasionally you yeah know, you can see her you can see her doing the sort of glammed down beginning of Miss Congeniality <laughs> as yeah. well yeah you know. well the talk is that everyone in Hollywood very much wants her to be because at the moment they do kind of need another huge uh, leading lady who can open films and I think she's got all the material but apparently every, most scripts come to her first if you know she fits into them no absolutely yeah she's she's hilarious and uh, she's grown up wanting to be a comedian a screen comedian I think her live stream was to be on SNL uh, which she's managed to do in the end yeah, she's hosted it but I think she wanted to be a cast member and her improvisational skills are excellent she's got a really dirty sense of humour uh, and that which hasn't really translated to, to, to films yet but uh, as long as she doesn't get pigeonholed or, or go down that road because I think her natural strength is comedy as long as she doesn't be pushed too much towards dramatic roles or you could win an Oscar Emma because she's still very very good at that yep. sort of stuff yep. but I think you know we could probably have like a really new Goldie Hawn or you know a, a, a Gilda Radner with a proper screen career in, in Emma Stone mm. I think she's making all the right choices as well I mean I don't think of her as pigeonholed as anything she kind of she's done such a range of stuff with you know Spider-Man yeah um, Zombieland uh, The Help that, I mean those are very different mm. films she seems to be making very smart choices uh, at C Cunningham 1593 asks who is the holy trinity of filmmaking director scriptwriter, composer and who would star well, that's a four-point trinity, but uh, good question. What do we think? So is this like, are we talking box office? Are we talking, we're talking like Oscars? What are we talking? I think we're talking just our dream holy trinity. 
Who would we have? Who would be the director, scriptwriter, and composer? Ooh, that's I, a tough one. I'd make this easier by having the director and screenwriter be the same person. <laughs> Which is because then you can have the Trinity. Well, you know, if if you like him, you often love him. I'd say Quentin Tarantino. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, who would it be the composer? I would suggest uh, Morricone. Interesting, very interesting. Uh, Tarantino wanted Morricone to do the score from Glorious Bastards. He's never actually worked with a composer before and he wanted them to do it and then he started using all these temp tracks from Morricone films and loved it so much he decided to just go ahead and do that. Um, so who knows what he might do for Django Unchained. Uh, Ollie, who would be your Holy Trinity? God, that's difficult. It is um, difficult. Can we bring people back from the dead? Or do they yes. Yeah, it's Holy. It's a Holy Trinity. So holy there, Trinity. There we go. Okay. So I could have Howard Hawks directing and Billy Wilder screenwriting. Ooh. Then. Interesting. Yeah. See, I Not would Wilder directing. Well, just because I figure I figure Howard Hawks should be in there somewhere, and you know, he did Gentleman Fred Blonde, His Girl Friday. These are two of my favourite films. You know, and I still get the Wilder touch by having him do the screenplay with IAL Diamond, obviously, because you've you know, it's two for one in it. Um, I'm not sure about the composer. I would like then if we're bringing people back from the dead and just seeing what the hell would happen. I as would they like, were, by the way, not as they would be now. Yes, because yes, because yeah. um, I don't imagine Billy Wilder would be a great director dead. Um, <laughs> but I would quite like to see what would happen if Billy Wilder directed a script by Joss Whedon. <gasps> I think that would be good. Uh, Serenity Two. Something's gone wrong with Helen. Uh, quick, and I have, I have real button. no sense of a composer because I wouldn't be listening to the music. <laughs> We wouldn't need music. Exactly. Yeah, the the dialogue would be the music. Joss Whedon could write the music. Yeah, like the uh, the uh, theme music to Firefly, which is great. It could be like Doctor Horrible. <laughs> it would be By amazing. Billy Wilder. Yeah. Yes. Wowzers! I don't know who I'd want for this one. Uh, to be honest, um, director. Uh, ooh, Lord. Um, David Lynch directing a Shane Black script <laughs> composed by. Brad Fidel. Who's that? The guy who did the Terminator soundtrack. Oh, blimey. <laughs> God, that's not like my a- Holy Trinity by any means, but I would like to see that film. Unholy that, <laughs> yeah. sure. that would be unbelievably weird. And who would star in it? Peter Weller. That's who would star in it. Uh, okay. Well, that's got hit and written all over, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> With a silent S, my friend. <laughs> so, uh, at ConR62, uh, which is either Connor or a tribute to Conair, says to you, Helen. Hi. You. Obviously, you'd want to be Mrs. Wolverine. Is this true? It kind of is, kind yeah. Of is. That's yeah. a yes. I'll be honest. But which I, I'd like to make clear that's not Mrs. Hugh Jackman. No, he's already got one. Yeah, and it's not even quite Mrs. Comic Book Wolverine. It's kind of Mrs. Movie Wolverine. Mrs. Movie Wolverine. Well, yeah. Specific. Okay. Yeah, it is well, you know, you, a yeah. girl's got to choose her choice. What sort of uh, wife would you be to Mrs. Wolverine? Would you be like a, a, you know, like a housewife? Or would you be out there fighting crime with the husband? I'd probably be like... Like maybe cleaning guns, so I'd be a bit involved, but I don't see the need to actually go out and fight myself. Would you, know? you be cleaning the claws? Would you be cleaning his guns? Steady on, Chris. This is a family <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but the question is also extended to us: Which screen husband would the rest of the Empire crew set Helen up with? I've got two. <laughs> this is the weirdest question I've ever had. Yes, go on. Van Helsing. He can't so, set up. Hair, huge no, I don't want. And no. Leopold. Uh, no, I don't want a. I don't want Van Helsing because I don't want a husband with better hair than me. And Leopold, uh, no, I didn't like the breeches. I'm going to uh, tell Hugh Jackman on you. I'd go for. Uh, oh, okay, Ollie, what about you? God, I've never thought about this. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you haven't all been sitting at home at night. Mister Incredible. <laughs> good answer. That's very good. Yeah, he's he's animated, but I think we can get past that. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, Love finds a way. Go to moviematch.com. Uh, I would say Van Helsing, 
but the Peter Cushion variety. Oh, <laughs> come on! What's wrong with that? He's a good-looking guy. I Not would. when he was Van Helsing. Yeah, he was. Maybe only when he was like twenty. Lovely hair. Oh. And uh, I do also have to say, Helen. Oh, maybe, don't. Maybe you. Peter Laurie would be a great <laughs> choice to be your screen husband. <laughs> Helen hates it when I do this voice. I don't know why, though. Okay, moving on. <coughs> You're going to stop now. Yeah, I'm going to okay. stop. At Lee Alex asks, if you didn't work at Empire, what would your dream job be? Well, my dream job would be uh, receiving a 5.1 or a 7.1 mm. Dolby Digital Surround Sound System. So if anyone <laughs> wants to help me fulfill that dream, then by all means do get in touch. Helen, what's yours? Um, my dream job would be, I don't know, uh, proofreading scripts for Joss Whedon. <laughs> Done! Perfect! Not a mistake in there, Joss. Oh, fantastic. Uh, uh, what's your name? Ali. <laughs> That's you, sorry. Uh, my dream That's job would be, be one uh, where people knew my name. That, that would be <laughs> my dream job. McDonald's, they give you a badge. They sorry, do give I, you a badge. I looked at you and I went completely blank and I was like, I know the face. Huge I, know the <laughs> I know the hair. What's going on? What would your dream job be? In reality? Yeah, in reality. Well, I'm going to sound like a prick. Apart from what it is now. You know, it, it, the thing is, I would say this, and I'm living it, so it makes me sound like an insufferable oh, prick. shut up. Well, Jesus. Do you want to say this outside, Ollie? <laughs> uh, my dream job would be, perhaps, someone's professional friend. I'd like to be a person who looks after a celebrity who I admire and like. Right. And, you know, they kind of, you know, they're bag man. And just go on the private jet and, So the, the Johnny Drama, essentially. I'd like to be Johnny Drama. That's who I'd want to be. You want to be Johnny Drama? Yeah, I think so. Oh, Ali. That is your name, right? Yep. Ali, okay. Uh, and Ollie? Mine would be, not dissimilar to Ali's, but I'd like to be David Attenborough's personal assistant. <laughs> See? Oh, the times I'd have. <laughs> would you dress up in a gorilla costume? No, it wouldn't to, be what, weird. What would, you would, you, would you ride giant uh, tortoises together? I'd just go on adventures with him and he'd tell me wonderful stories. I love that you looked genuinely outraged there at that suggestion. I don't make this sordid. I didn't mean to be sordid. I just said, you know, because I imagine he's more at home with animals than he is with humans. No, I think he'd probably be more at ease if, you know, you no. were dressed up as a giant gorilla. I think he would be distinctly not at ease if I were to turn up dressed as an aardvark. I think he'd like that. I think you've made this awful. Uh, Sir David, it is Sir David, it's not Lord, isn't it? It's not, that's the other one, that's, that's Richard. That's Richard Richard's is yeah, the, the Lord, Lord. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So Sir David, if you are listening, and if you would like Ollie to dress up in a gorilla costume... Please get Chris now. a 7.1 surround sound Yes, <laughs> absolutely. The other dream job for me, um, sadly, I'm far too rubbish at football to be centre forward for Liverpool FC. Anyway, several tweeters have uh, written in to ask, is it me or was this week's podcast lacking a competition? No, it wasn't you. In my defence, I recorded the podcast last week having come straight off a stupidly early morning flight and I wasn't entirely compass mentis. So, yes, the competition two weeks ago offered five listeners a chance to win two Last Exit to Nowhere t-shirts of their choice. And the winners are, drumroll, thanks guys, John Coop, or Coupe Jesse McGough Richard Sturman or Sturman Stuart Fraser with a said and Robert Stuttle congratulations or to you guys Stutley. or Stutley uh, you all correctly identified that Uli Adele was the director of Last Exit to Brooklyn uh, so congratulations once again we'll give you your details to uh, Last Exit to Nowhere and off you go you'll be getting two t-shirts of your choice don't forget uh, very very soon uh, this week's competition is linked to one of the cinematic releases this week it's William Friedkin's darkly comic thriller Killer Joe uh, we don't have a bucket of chicken to give away instead we've got two posters signed by Mr Friedkin himself to give away and to stand a chance of winning simply answer the following ridiculously easy question name Gene Hackman's character in Friedkin's The French Connection that's it easy easy so oh, no. easy in fact, that I expect next week's winners to be a Mr. G. Hackman of Santa Fe and a Mr. W. Friedkin of 
freaking land um, but if you want to stop that from happening send us your answer your name and your postal address to podcast at empireonline.com or tweet us at at empire magazine using the hashtag empire podcast and those are the same methods you should use to get in touch with us and tell us what you want us to hear and while we're talking about killer joe william friedkin popped in last week for a chat about his new film and pretty much all his old classics as well the full hour-long interview will be available as a separate podcast but here's a taster to whet your appetite he was talking to myself and phil disemlian we are delighted to have in the Empire Pod booth a legend, uh, William Friedkin. Hello, Where? sir. Well, oh. yeah, right there, right there. Oh, oh okay. It is you. It is you, sir. You should uh, warn me that I'm a legend here today. <laughs> well, how do you how do you feel about that when people introduce you as the legend? I mean, I did a Q and A with you last night. Introduce you as the great William Friedkin. So, uh, I just divorce myself from that characterization because mm. I don't think of myself that way at all. Was there ever a point in your career that you did? When no, no, no. I mean there obviously points in my career when I've been more arrogant and uh, stupid you know enough to uh, think more of myself than I should have Mm -hmm. but I don't anymore you know and and as a matter of fact as a film director you're just another bloke making a living you know you make a good living when you make a film Mm-hmm. That separates you somewhat. People see your name on a screen, but you're the same guy. I'm the same guy I was in high school. You know? Well, there you go. No fundamental changes. Not really, no. I'm, I'm, I still find the same things uh, funny and the same things tragic. And, mm-hmm. You know, I still have basically the same attitudes I had when I was much younger. Okay, interesting. I mean, I, I was going to introduce you as not just William Friedkin, but at... William Friedkin, because you are now on Twitter. Yes, I've been enjoying it as well. It's interesting. I mean, some of the stuff is obviously rubbish. You know, some of the people are deranged (laughs) who are uh, on the social network. But then uh, every once in a while you get uh, a little message from someone quite unexpectedly that you really admire. Like this fellow Ian Rankin, the oh, yes. uh, detective novelist who created Inspector Rebus. Mm. A- and he and I have been communicating via Twitter and he came to the screening of Killer Joe in Edinburgh. Really? And I met him. But I had only known him, th- obviously before, through his books yeah. and then on Twitter. And because of that, you know, I got to meet him, and that—that's always very interesting. To to, uh, and and there are people like Paulo Coelho wow. on, on Twitter, the fellow who wrote The Alchemist, yes. which has sold about I don't know twenty million books or more. And it's interesting to see them communicating with, um, you know, the rest of us, with the general masses of people. Awesome, awesome guy. Did any, anyone meet him last week? He came into London? No, just you, I think. No, Take I my word for it, he is awesome. I saw the photos, they look amazing. They do, yeah, he was, uh, we, we took some photographs of him for the website, and he's the first guest we've had in the pod booth. He was actually started posing, he was giving some suggestions to, to Debbie, who was taking pictures. He was taking his glasses off, he was kind of doing some sort of page seven fellow thing. It was really, really bizarre, but he is fantastic, and uh, yeah, please do listen to that podcast, it is great. Uh, but maybe a little tip do watch To Live and Die in L.A. before you listen to the podcast because we kind of spoil it. Anyway, Billy Freakin isn't the only guest in this week's show. The great Stellan Skarsgård also came in to talk about his new movie, The King of Devil's Island, and he was a whole heap of fun. Here he is talking to Helen and Phil. I would say it's your new film, but it was it was sort of re- released elsewhere nearly well, over a year ago, I guess. Yeah, in Norway. Yeah. 
So, uh, so we're finally getting it. Now, I had a look at this last night. It's, it's a terrific film. Um, you play the governor of a, a sort of, is it a prison, a sort of reformatory, I guess, somewhere between the two? Yeah, it's uh, both a prison and reformatory island. I mean, basically, this is 1915 in Norway, and mm. you could end up in that place if you were just uh, had a social behavior. So you didn't have to commit crimes to get there. Mm. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, it's a really kind of... Um, a really well, it's a, it's a very good drama for a start, but it's it's a very very good drama involving young people. I mean, you've got you're surrounded by really young actors. You're almost quite a small role in the film in, in some ways, but a, but a kind of a pivotal one. Um, so, what was it that made you take the role? Was it was it the script? I guess uh, I was approached several years ago because uh, the director Marius Holtz has been working on the project for about ten years, uh, and then it was a very conventional jailbreak film mm. uh, and I was not interested and then he came back and there had been rewrites done and it was getting its form but most of all when I heard that he when he told me that he was he was scanning the countryside in Norway to find young boys with a troubled background uh, wow. to play the roles he didn't want uh, uh, well-bred well-fed young aspiring actors to play the roles wow. um, and then I then suddenly the stakes were higher for the film because then it we were dealing with the subtleties of reality mm. and when you look at those kids you can you, I mean that you can see the hard surface that is their own and you can also see in the cracks of that hard surface you can see the vulnerable child behind and that is not something a, a young actor can just play yeah Oh, absolutely terrific performances all around. I mean, I thought your character as well was um, was a really interesting one because, I mean, this in some ways reminds me of the Shawshank Redemption and there the warden was a pretty, you know, irredeemable character. He was he was just pretty awful. Whereas your character, you know, in some ways he's very good. You know, he's, he honestly believes he's helping these boys. He's kind of very proud when one of them does well and gets to leave this place. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's kind of maybe got some slightly less attractive personal qualities he's too proud i think maybe and uh, and his own kind of failings seem to get him into into some trouble is that is that fair yeah it's not much point to show the audience oh uh, almost a hundred years ago there was an evil man in norway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's more interesting to show i mean the the problem is not that he's an evil man and if you exchange him for another man mm. that prison will be a beautiful place mm. uh, that's not how it works so it was important for me to to play him as i tried to play him as a man f that for that time was mm. very progressive a man who wanted to do good and thought he was doing good of course it was another time another another society other values but eventually the the point comes when uh, the crucial point comes when there's been a, a case of sexual abuse on the island and then society kicks in in the sense that if he lets that come out his career is fucked yeah his life is destroyed uh, and then he becomes the coward mm. and then he he uh, he abandons his boys in a way yeah but he doesn't do it easily. I mean, you can see on him that it's not a pleasant thing to do, but mm. he feels that he has to do it. And you can see the shame in him as well. Yeah. But, it's, it, it, but at the same... We tried for a while. Uh, we said, well, let's... Uh, because the way it's written is very much the, the function of the oppressor. And we said, Let, let's try to develop the character and give him more nuances. And we started re writing extra scenes and creating an entire life for him and, and relationships and worked on the relationship with the wife and everything. 
But what happened then was that the the structure of the film capsized mm. because because it is a prison break film. That is the, the the bone structure of it. So he has to be a smaller role, but a fierce role. Mm-hmm. So we had to go back to that. But we managed to to at the same time without adding lines, we sort of played his, his all those things as undercurrents yeah. in him. You got a lot of that story with the wife, I think, just from sort of glances and looks that she yeah. gave. Really, I think it was still sort of in there. And it, it, it's uh, it, it's it's great fun to be able to to send so much signals to the audience without having one single line about it yeah. basically mm. does it have a kind of modern, a modern resonance for you the story because we've had a lot of press coverage over here in, in recent years of abuse in, in um, within kind of social services and, and such like is that yeah something Green that, Island where in the, in yeah, exactly. the Catholic uh, is that something uh, that they're orphanages kind of, and everything yeah, I mean it's, it, this, it's uh, of course it does it, it, it's not something unique uh, and we have to understand that the way we look at children today and and human rights and values that is something really really new, and it's also something that basically is uh, is reserved for the, for this little part of the world that is the modern West. Yeah, I mean, in most countries in the world, kids have have it much worse today mm. than the kids in this film. Yeah, but at the same, and, and I mean, just a couple of decades ago in Ireland, a lot of kids were abused that way. Mm. Yeah, I would say I was reading up about um, about the prison in the island, and it's it's apparently now one of the most pleasant prisons in the world. Have Probably, you heard this? yeah, yeah. And it's very scandy, you know. <laughs> uh, we we uh, for, since, a, since several decades back, the idea in, in Scandinavia is not to punish the mm. the criminals; it's to to uh, readjust them and get them back into society, which which means we sh- they shouldn't be punished. There's no reason to have horrible places for them to live in. It should be decent, and it's like a yeah kind of resort for <laughs> for criminals now. Yeah, they're not allowed to leave the island, and they they have to go to bed at certain times, but. Other other than that, it's uh, pretty decent. Yeah, I was reading about tanning and you know sun tanning time and tennis time and so yeah, on. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, there are worse it, things. It, I mean, it's uh, they're more probable to adjust to society if they if they get that. Yeah, absolutely. And flogging. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to say, I mean, uh, you know, it's not just this film this summer. We've also obviously already seen you in the Avengers, and and we were huge fans of that in this office. So we should probably ask you a, a couple of questions about that if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, First of all, uh, you know, are you are were you surprised by just how successful it was? Well, you you don't expect any film you make to make a billion and a half dollars in a couple of weeks, uh, but I knew it would become a success. I mean, it's a, there was a lot of very talented people working in that direction and. Uh, Joss Whedon is is a good director and a fantastic writer and he knows what he's doing and and uh, Kevin Feige uh, the head of Marvel he also knows what he's doing what's what's fun with those popcorn movies is that in the last 10 years maybe they they started to to not only have the special effects but they got interested in in getting good directors and good actors which has sort of altered the genre in a way Mm. and also made it much more attractive yeah does yeah. that does that blur the line for you between, you know, working with a Lars von Trier on a film like Dogville, which is very theatrical, I guess, and and working on these big, you know, big blocks office popcorn as you describe movies, where you come in and maybe work for a few days? Um, does that kind of is that more satisfying for you to be kind of in that environment now? 
Well, of course it is. I mean, you look at the cast, uh, the Avengers cast. There's some of the best actors in the world there. Uh, it's nice to be with them. Of course, you maybe you would have appreciated if you had more scenes that were, were about human <laughs> relationships. Uh, but, 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 but that is not the point there. But I, I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy working with those as long as I also have the possibility to, to go back and do Trier or a film like Devil's Island. Yeah, for sure. Were you disappointed we saw a, a final um, <clears throat> post-credit sting where the Avengers gathered for a shawarma? For what? For the kebab. What was that? Oh, there's a scene, maybe you didn't see it in, in cinemas in the US, they had a scene where it gathered Tony Stark and Thor, etc. And they kind of sat down for a, for a kebab. Oh, You've not seen... No, I haven't seen that. I haven't noticed that. Yeah, that was only... I think only that was in the only US, filmed, though. It was only filmed, like, the day of the press junket or the premiere or something of the US. So it was only in cinemas in the US after it came out. Okay. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but they all went for they all went for kebabs and you didn't get to go. Well, we were we were disappointed for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't <laughs> go for kebabs. <laughs> um, I was going to ask as well, because Avengers did leave me with one question, and that was regarding the post-credits bit of Thor. Because in Thor, we saw... The character, the, the Eric Selvig sort of reflected in the glass, and it seemed to be Loki. And I thought at that point, oh, he's been he possessed, or he's been, you know, um, replaced by Loki, or something else. But the, the Avengers didn't seem to touch on that. Has anybody sort of told you what what the thinking was behind that? Not that it's not a spoiler anymore. No, but well, the, I, they hadn't written the script properly for Avengers <laughs> when when they did that tail thing for Thor. Yeah. Uh, but they they sort of hinted at uh, Loki getting some kind of power there yeah. and, and uh, uh, entering the mind of of, of Selvig. Now he did it in another way in the film Avengers by his scepter that suddenly mm. became very important. Very handy. Uh, yeah, very <laughs> handy. And how do you feel about sort of uh, you know? Norse mythology being kind of appropriated for for comics. I don't care. I mean, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really happy that anybody's heard about Thor outside of Scandinavia. Right. <laughs> but um, I'm not a very religious person. And, uh, but it's kind of it's good. Uh, a, an advantage with polytheistic religions is that there's not one truth. True. Uh, and that makes them more tolerant because everything can be discussed. Hmm. Coming up, we have more interviews for you, including the producers of The Amazing Spider-Man, Avi Arad and Matt Tolmak, and some guy named John Hamm. Don't know who that is, really. Uh, for now, though, it's time to discuss the week's movie news. You'll forgive us for a second if we toot our own trumpets, because part of that news is a revelation that the new issue of Empire has hit the streets and newsagent shelves everywhere. It's also available on iPad, if that's your bag. Uh, as ever, it's crammed with cracking world exclusives, including Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise talking Jack Reacher, our set visits to Baz Luhrmann's unspeakably lavish The Great Gatsby, and Ben Wheatley's less than unspeakably lavish sightseers. Our big interview is Rachel Fies. We have fantastic features in Gangster Squad, and The Untouchables and there's an amazing chat with Paul Verhoeven looking back at his three sci-fi classics Robocop, Total Recall and Starship Troopers How amazing is it? Well we tracked down the I'll buy that for a dollar guy Yep, him Uh, But front and centre is our incredible Bourne Legacy feature bringing you the inside track on the first Matt Damon free Bourne film Uh, Jeremy Renner is a man stepping into Damon's shoes as Aaron Cross and we shot and spoke to him exclusively for the magazine and uh, Ollie here was a man who was in LA doing that or doing part of it you didn't actually take the pictures did you know 
No, I did request to, but they said my phone probably wasn't good enough. <laughs> yeah, precisely. With a thumb over the lens. Yes, exactly. I'm going to Instagram this, Jeremy. Do you yeah. mind? Uh, were you there for the shoot? Yes, I was. I was there for the shoot, which was in LA, in the uh, least salubrious part of LA, uh, which is a place with many unsalubrious parts. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it was great. He was terrific, running around all over the place, looking uh, a lot better than anyone else does making us all feel bad <laughs> but yes it was a lot of fun so he was game for running around and because it's a it's a very intensive photo shoot he's got his gun out he's there's a lot of physical poses yeah and he was good and he was uh did a long interview with him after that which is uh in the magazine mm-hmm. um uh, yeah he's a terrific guy and i've seen a little bit of the film can't give away too much obviously uh how much did you see uh about 20 25 minutes i think what and it looks it looks genuinely terrific. So a couple of action sequences. There is one in a house where Jeremy Renner's character and Richard Weiss's character, she is a scientist and he is a um an agent in a kind of parallel operation to Bourne. And they meet for the first time in her house. I won't say what the kind of setup is for how they meet, but it's the most astonishing action sequence through the whole house. There's a bit where he runs up the side of an entire building, all done in one shot. Really? Uh, yes. Wow. I believe he has very sticky fingers. Um, <laughs> but it, it looks great. I'm really hopeful. Obviously, I haven't seen the whole film, so I can't yeah. judge, but it, I'm really hopeful that this is going to turn out well. Because the Bourne Legacy, uh, it takes place, correct me if I'm wrong, can, uh, What's During. Con- concurrently? Is concurrently with, yeah, with um It's kind Born of... It's, well, you know, remember at the end of the Bourne Ultimatum so that uh, Blackbriar was exposed to the media. Yes. So everyone knew who Jason Bourne was and it was kind of out there. So this kind of picks up from there that, okay, this is exposed, but it is not just exposing this one... Uh, Group. There are different branches. Exactly. This is part of an umbrella of multiple groups. And uh, Aaron Cross, which is Jeremy Renner's character, is part of one of those groups. And Edward Norton, who plays very shady villain, who almost no one would tell me anything about, uh, but he controls everything. And he's trying to shut down all these other programs so that nothing gets exposed. So then it's then Aaron Cross on the run trying to find out what happened to him. So it's Hawkeye versus the Hulk. In a sense. <laughs> but it doesn't quite go down that road, no. sadly. But, uh, but it, it looks uh, looks mighty interesting. It's directed, it does look really... directed by Tony Gilroy. Who yes, who wrote or co-wrote all the other ones and has um, kind of stepped up onto this. Uh, he's obviously made a couple of films before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made... Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton, Which that's I the loved. name I couldn't, fi- couldn't reach for. And yep. Duplicity. Yep. And he's actually kind of asked him about directing and kind of is it a real big step up to do something else and he was very kind of matter of fact that it's all just directing he doesn't see it as in any way different to what he's done before he's just telling a story happens to move a bit quicker at certain points uh, but he's got Dan Bradley back doing all the action stuff which I think is a very good thing to do but it's interesting it kind of potentially opens up this whole franchise much larger I think none of them really expressly say this but I think what they're looking for is the fact that you know it gets compared to Bond and by doing this and opening up and saying there's not just one uh, organisation, there are many, and they could we haven't necessarily given away all of them yet, they could keep this going on indefinitely. From the 25 minutes you saw, from talking to people, who else you talked to? You talked to Frank uh, Marshall? I spoke to Frank Marshall, yes, who was the producer and has been the producer all the way through. Rachel Weiss, who is the separate interview. Uh, Edward Norton, Tony Gilroy and Jeremy Renner. Okay, from from talking to them, I mean, looking at the the the, the second trailer that came out, yep. about a month or so ago, Jason Bourne's name was said constantly yep. in that trailer, and there's constant invocations of of Bourne as an idea. Mm. Is that going to be the same thing with the film? I mean, obviously it's the Bourne legacy, but does he haunt this film? Yeah, he, well, he exists in the background. He's as far as I know, and Matt Damon is not in this film at all. I 
I'm 95% he won't turn up in some kind of Easter egg that they're holding back. Uh, but Jason Bourne exists in the background because he has been revealed. So everyone knows who he is. So you see it in a bit in the trailer where you see there are news reports with him on. So he will be mentioned a lot, but he's not in this but they're not saying he can't come back later it's not closed off to Jason Bourne so there could be a, uh, I read a story the other day on, on the Empire website from your, your yep. feature uh, where Frank Marshall indicated that possibly Cross could team up with Bourne and yeah, this is, the next one he says this is his dream for the next one which but, I think would be terrific but hasn't Damon kind of distanced himself from this in a way because he didn't he say quite definitively that he wouldn't do another Bourne film unless Paul Greengrass did it I, be- uh, I believe he did say that, but I think he said because they, they, they both chose to leave because there wasn't a story. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know Matt Damon particularly well, but if they came to him with a particularly compelling story, he's never said, I'm never going to do it again. Yeah. He just, they walked away because there was nothing for them to make. And I think it was the right decision. I don't think anyone wanted really just to see Jason Bourne carrying on knowing who he was. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one last word about uh, Jeremy Renner. He's had... A hell of a couple of years, but particularly the last 12 months have been stellar for him. Yeah, extraordinary. He considers this really, though, his first thing of carrying a film. Yeah. Like Mission Impossible 4, he, that's Tom Cruise's film. Avengers, I think, fair enough, he was, uh, he was a supporting part in that. This is kind of his real first test, which he is very much aware of. But yeah, it's, it's a kind of a big moment for him. And he's a terrific actor. He's not just, kind of, he's not just an action star. Two he Oscar is, nominations. Exactly, exactly. He's genuinely a very, very good actor. So, uh, yeah, hopefully if this turns out as well as the small part I've seen says then I think it could kind of kick him up an extra notch I look forward to that and uh, of course you can always uh, pick up that cover feature and indeed all the other features and everything else in the new issue of Empire which as I've said is available now to buy Uh, and it's on the iPad as well Uh, Ali what was your uh, story this week my story this week is one of those stories that you've uh, taken the mick out of me before for bringing up which is a trailer story because how can you talk about a trailer in a podcast should we act it out but I'm the man who can do it because I look so much like Judge Dredd that I think people will hear that from my voice. Anyway, the trailer for Judge Dredd has finally arrived after what felt like an incredibly long time. It's here, and we can see Mm. footage from it. Essentially, the first comment that people made, the whip-smart, I'm on Facebook, I want to make a comment, is, it looks like the raid. And one dry wit said, it looks like the Dredd. Yeah. Wow. Do you see? That was was a D on that, wasn't me? I'd like to... Anyway, that Dredd, for pun, aside... There are comparisons to be made. Actually, genuinely laughed at that. They are <laughs> they are similar setups. There is a Mega City One apartment block that they have to fight their way through. This is yep. uh, Judge Anderson, who's a newbie, who's a rookie, with uh, Judge Dredd, yep. trying to fight their way up to the top of this apartment block where drugs are being made by a bad person called Marma. God damn those bad people! They're the worst. Um, and the drug is called Slow Mo, which makes you experience things at very, 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 Ooh. very slow thing, Nina. Which I imagine must be quite handy for action sequences. You bet. The trailer is full of glass breaking slowly. So is Dredd just seeing a whole bunch of people coming towards him in slow motion and then just shooting him really easily? Or does it mean they can dodge his bullets or something? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy about the, the logic of this. Well, let's let's find out. I don't know. From the trailer, it just mean, uh, for me, it just looks like they're just going nuts for the slow-mo totally nuts on it presumably it would mean they're experiencing things in slow motion which would make their reflexes faster and Ah. they would be going faster so a bit like Quicksilver in um, the Marvel comics sure he sees everything really really slowly yeah he perceives time in that that way or Max Payne in Max Payne or Max Payne in Max Payne Mm. one two or three quite moving Mm. on yes so yeah check it out I am uh, actually mildly optimistic about it I well it doesn't look like the previous Judge yeah Dredd exactly film, and which is a good thing which yes. seems a bit unfair to damn it with that faint praise but it's true there are very very bad memories of the original Judge Dredd so 
cautiously optimistic. I, re- I really hope it does well. It also probably should be said, if it does look like the raid, it can't be that either one copied the other. Oh, no, yeah, let's, let's put that to bed. I'm absolutely sick not. of that bullshit. You know, it's it's a it's a Whoa. partner block where you have to fight your way up. I've seen that in several films. No one's going to point a gun at Well, also, let's, let's, let's be even more clear about this. Uh, Dread went into, I think, production around the time that, that the raid was finished. And I don't think either one... This is an Indonesian movie shot by a Welshman thousands of miles away from, from Hollywood or, you know, or, or South Africa. It's a kind of... It's a weird... It's a hybrid, this movie. It's, it's British slash South African production, I believe, or it was shot in South Africa. But there's no way Alex Garland was aware of the raid when he was conceiving of this And film. also, you know, Mega City 1... Yeah. City blocks yeah. are really well established yeah. in in the co- in the comics. You know, if you're going to base yourself somewhere, may as well surround yourself with like-minded people. It's yeah. it's not exactly a big leap. Let's just hope that it has uh, even half the visceral impact of the raid. Because if it does, we we could be in for a treat with a bit of a sci-fi uh, uh, twinge as well. And um, Carl Urban looks looks good as as Dread. Such and it's a good not even face. a hint of the helmet coming off. No way. You can definitely see his grimace, and that's key for me. And he's got that sort of gruff dread voice as well. Interesting enough, uh, we actually have a closer look at Mega City 1 in the new issue of Empire. We got some some nice high-res shots of the sort of finished CG effects work. And um, the action, the main action takes place in a block called Peach Trees, which is named after the cafe where Alex Garland and Andrew McDonald, who are the producers and writers of the, of the movie, first met John Wagner, who's one of the, the, the creators of Dread. Uh, but if you look at the other blocks in Mega City 1 mostly they're named after people who contributed to 2000 AD like uh, proper touchstones in the in the in the comics uh, history people like Carlos Esquera people like Brian Bolland Alan Grant John Wagner so it's it's really really interesting so they've already laid in those those easter eggs and they seem to be much more faithful already to the comic than the uh, the Danny Cannon version ever was which is a great thing absolutely fantastic uh, Ollie let's go back to you before we move on to Helen because we're going to be talking Highlander with Helen What's your story this week? Uh, My story is super inconsequential, but at the same time, brilliant. (laughs) Um, It is a piece of voice casting for the Lego film, which I know we're all very excited about, Um, which is that uh, Will Arnett will be playing Batman. Lego Batman. (laughs) Lego Batman. He'll be voiced, but I just think that's amazing. I'd like him to be Batman when Christian Bale finishes. I would watch (laughs) the mother living shit out of that film. I also love that the Lego Movie now has a full name, and that it's called the Piece of Resistance. Yes, <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Well, the, the, is, is it written and directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller? It is. Yes, who I believe Ali spoke to recently. I spoke to them recently uh, whilst I was talking to them about the DVD release of Twenty One Jump Street, which they of course directed as well as Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And I spoke to them about what they wanted to do with this, and it, they explained to me individual scenes. They didn't go into too much detail, but it's kind of a. I don't know. It's like you've put your hands into the tub of Lego that your parents have collected with for you and your brothers over the years and just gone, right, let's see what we can do. And there's a pirate scene where this whole rolling wave of Japanese-style art print Lego waves will crash into this boat. All kinds of stuff. Then there's Superman, then there's Batman. It, it feels in their hands like it's going to be fun and not that cynical brand tie-in that people often thought it would be. I genuinely am excited about this film. Also that it will include small portions of stop motion from genuine Lego fans. That will be incorporated as part of the film. If this is an unexpected uh, surprise for me, that mm. Batman and Superman are going to yeah, totally. Also, another small. This is not this is not confirmed by any means, but they're trying to get Channing Tatum for Superman. I think that's <laughs> excellent as well. That would be pretty damn cool. But yeah, Will Arnett as Batman. That's yeah. just 
perfect. He's got the Absolutely best. perfect. Best voice in the business. Uh, yeah, we like those guys, and we like the idea of the Lego film. Very, very good. Uh, Helen? Well, I was going to talk about the Ryan Reynolds being cast as Highlander story, but could, Ali totally stole my thunder We can talk already. about I it, mentioned in, it in further detail. Yeah, we just... We just we just brushed the surface. We really did. Yes. Um, it, yeah. So he's he's going to be the rebooted Highlander. Oh, we've um, heard this one, Helen. Come on. <laughs> um, no, of course. So that's confirmed. That is confirmed today. Yes, he's been rumoured for a little while. Um, it's it's come from Joe Blow today, I believe. The questions now are legion. Really, you know, will he have a good Scottish accent? Will, will he, he have a good French do ac- one? accent? You know. Yeah, that's right. That's true. You know, you'd, you'd imagine he'd be Scottish. The but then you would have imagined originally that, <laughs> that Highlander would be Scottish, would be Scottish well, and, he was that, trying, bless and that the the Egyptian guy who'd spent a lot of time in Portugal and Japan wouldn't be Scottish, you know. <laughs> so there's there's so many questions about the first film, so well, many. Clearly, if you crash an Egyptian, Portuguese, and Japanese accent into each other, it sounds exactly like a Scottish accent. I see, but doesn't the Scottish accent sound French? I'm confused now. I'm curious about what they're going to use as the tagline because the tagline for the first film was, of course, there can be only one, which took on more and more ironic overtones as the sequels arrived. How are they going to sell this? That's one of their biggest publicity arms must be there can be only one, but there can't be. This is the Maybe they can go with heads get chopped or something. <laughs> <laughs> High lands will high. <laughs> is, that, is that what they're going to go with this? People were uh, on Twitter today going, how dare they? How dare they mess with such a classic film? The first one is brilliant. It's not. No. The first one is shit. I watched that in IMAX, and then it makes it 40 times as shit. Wow. <laughs> we apologise for the uh, the bad language of the Emperor podcast, but the original Highlander, uh, <laughs> it drives us to, to well, swear. A load of old bollocks. I kind <laughs> really of love is. it, but it, yeah, it's I dreadful. love it too, I'll be honest. But it's yeah, it dreadful. is. It's not good. I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as good. Yeah. You know, but, a, but it is lovable. This isn't a new way of describing it, but it is literally a ninety-minute yeah, MTV it, video. And it, it, it's it only the it's only the sequels that make you want to throw things at the screen. That's a compliment. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I say dreadful, it's not a one-star movie. It, it's it's a kind of a two-star film. It's a it's a it's a four-star two-star. It's but it's four, not yeah, it's yeah, not an untouchable right. classic. That's no, the thing. absolutely it's like, not. It's totally ripe for being redone. Yeah, it could be it could be done well with decent special effects and characters that make sense and uh, accents. Yeah, yeah. Accents make sense. Yeah. The, the Highlander cartoon series that I watched when I was growing up was actually pretty good. There was a nice kind of you can do a lot with it. The idea of these kind of roaming Ronins it was exciting. I liked it. Mm. You're so young. Thanks. So I really feel like this has potential. Yeah. Uh, whether they're going to have a Sean Connery type character in there as well, I think might be asking for trouble. But we'll see. I'm excited. Absolutely. Well, there are three things I thought the first movie did right, which was Sean Connery, who was way more charismatic than uh, Christopher Lambert. Mm. Uh, the Kurgan. The Kurgan Clancy was Brown awesome. Was amazing. Get him back. And uh, a Queen soundtrack. Now, obviously, Queen won't be around to do a soundtrack for this one. So who's the equivalent? Who could... Who could do a Queen JLS available? Are they, yeah. <laughs> they could they could do that, couldn't they? That'd be oh, amazing. You are on a high, high Muse, road Muse to are nowhere. probably the closest, aren't they? Yeah, oh, you're right. Muse. Muse. Oh, yeah. That would be amazing. If Muse covered Who Wants to Live Forever, I would be happy. <laughs> so it's Muse. Who could play the Kurgan? If if indeed they go down that, down that road. Who's really tall? Peter Mullen. Peter Mullen. Peter Mullen is the Kurgan. Oh my god. Actually I'm fully on board now. This could be absolutely amazing. Okay, time for another double dose of interviews now. Uh, stop! It's ham time. Yes, I'm oh. uh, oh, sorry. John Ham, <laughs> aka Don Draper, and the world's sexiest man, judging for the number of ladies who suddenly remembered they had to go somewhere urgently when we were interviewing him, thus meaning that they had walked past the glass window of this pod booth, popped in recently to talk about his new movie, Friends with Kids, which is directed by his partner. Sorry, ladies, Jennifer Westfeld. And he's very, very funny as things turn out. Uh, he was talking to Helen, Nick DeSemlian, and Dan Jolin. 
And here are the highlights. And we're here with John Hamm. Hi. Hello. So, uh, I I think we should probably talk about your new film first. Uh, Why? Well, it's tradition, you know. And also the publicist is standing outside with a large, heavy axe. I know. Oh, God, she's fearsome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Well, you know, uh, it is in many ways... uh, my film I mean mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly I didn't direct it my, my girlfriend Jennifer Westfeld the lovely and talented did but mm-hmm. uh, I did act as a producer on this film and and, and had a, a very large hand in getting it made uh, learning about producing a film was a steep learning curve but we, we got it made and in fact there is no real reason that this, this movie should have been made in the, in the time allotted but through a Herculean effort on Jennifer's part it, we pushed the boulder up the hill and got it to the top yeah. and here we are I mean, I saw an interview with her. She was saying that you were basically using every day off that Kristen Wiig had from Saturday Night Live, you know, just fitting it in around everybody's schedule. It must have been crazy. Very true. And, uh, I mean, not only that, we had, you know, we had uh, the lovely and talented Megan Fox to, to mm. handle as well, who was a dream person to have on on the show because she was great she's incredibly talented she brings so much to the table but she also has an incredibly busy life as well uh and so we we had this kind of bizarre jenga tower of people's schedules to deal with uh but i have a feeling that's every film just when you're dealing with a studio you have longer to do it but we uh we made it happen, and yeah, we were very fortunate to get Kristen, and Lauren Michaels was incredibly nice in allowing her to, to miss a couple of days of rehearsal and writing to, to work on our show. And she, you know, she is such an insanely talented human being mm. that we were fortunate to have her. Well, there's two questions that that uh, sort of prompts from me. Number one, are you going to have to repay him in kind and, and do more turns on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> and number two, I mean, given that she's so lovely, this is now the second film where you've been really mean to her. Well, <laughs> I don't, you know, mean. We did get to roll around naked on one another in Bridesmaids, so it wasn't that, that wasn't necessarily mean. Funny sex is probably the only kind of sex I should probably ever do. It's always awkward. Uh, will I have to repay Lauren in kind? I would happily repay Lauren in kind. That is, uh, to be a part of that show is, uh, and the fact that I've gotten hosted uh, now three times and, uh, and be kind of a, a guest on it a couple more times, in fact, the last was uh, the the season finale of, of this season, which was insanely fun to be a part of. And Mick Jagger hosted, and you 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 kind of take a breath and you and you look around and you go, I can't believe that I'm doing this. You know, I I I, I, I always flash back to my like nine year old self watching that show mm. and thinking it was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life, and then realizing that you're on the same stage that. You know, Bill Murray and John Belushi and Chevy Chase and, I mean, just fill in the blanks. Phil Hartman and Chris Farley and, you know, Adam Sandler. All these people, you go, God, this is the same place. And uh, and it's remarkable. And then to have that experience for Kristen's last show. Mm. And you realize that this is a monumental occasion. And it's uh, bizarre. So I would happily repay Lauren with whatever he wants just to, just to be a part of that. And I would work with Kristen on... A commercial. I mean, I think she's phenomenal. I, I, lo- I love working with her. She is as funny as the day is long and uh, ha- possesses a, a remarkably profound sense of uh, humanity that 
I think her comedy comes from, but also, and you saw it in Bridesmaids. I mean, part of, part of what why that movie I think was so successful was that it was more than just a comedy where a bride shits in her dress and falls in the middle of the street. It had a, a real uh, emotional center to it, and that was in no small part due to Kristen's ability as an actress. You mentioned your nine-year-old self. Is it true that you played Winnie the Pooh in first grade? That was your first acting? That is 100% true, and I was good man. <laughs> that was good I brought it what's the secret to, to playing Winnie the Pig uh, my mom sewed the costume <laughs> I tied a pillow around my stomach with a belt and uh, there is in fact not video because there was no such thing as video back then but uh, an 8 millimeter film of uh, of of that performance that I've seen and on that YouTube I, that I possess oh no this, <laughs> if, if this gets out it will be it will be awesome shocking uh, no it's it's adorable I was you know I think I was all of about five years old and uh, the teacher I was handpicked the teacher picked me I think because she knew I was probably the one kid in class who was not shy about standing up in front of other people and basically make, making a fool of myself a talent I still possess <laughs> and so I mean obviously the acting thing has worked out to put it mildly but you've done a number of other jobs uh, can you kind of talk us through some of those kind of I've been I've been uh, yeah I've been a uh I have a feeling there's one particular job that you want me to talk about, but I, I have the waiter. I, leading question. I've uh, I've been uh, I've been a, a waiter and a bartender long longer than I've really been anything else. It, it was probably my first job when I was 18, you know, uh, as a busboy and then a dishwasher and a waiter, and it's it's you know it's a means to an end, and it's uh, I love working in restaurants. I love being in restaurants. I think that uh, my good friend in high school had a had a wonderful idea because he was a busboy as well, and he said. Uh, his sort of uniquely populist thought was that no one should be able to eat in a restaurant that hasn't worked in a restaurant. <laughs> and I think that's kind of great uh, mm. because you really do get a sense of, no pun intended, but how the sausage is made. Like you really get a sense of how many people really work hard to, to put that plate in front of you. And uh, it's a very humbling experience. And uh, I loved it. I love especially being a bartender because when you're in control of the booze you have a lot of control <laughs> uh, and it was uh, you, you see a, a, an incredible uh, display of humanity when you're behind a bar it is uh, remarkable God, you have an A-team glass. That is so weird. That's true. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, I just, movie. You were. I, sorry, it was. That's just the glasses that we have in the office. It wasn't even meant to be a pointed I can't even thing. Imagine that. Uh, let's do this. Well, let's get some pint glasses. We'll put the A-team logo on it, and we'll give them out to Empire Magazine. It'll be super cool. That actually must have been the thought process that went through. There literally was a meeting that that was the the, the, that was the, the result of. Yes. Yeah. We do actually also have some Mad Men mugs downstairs, so well, that you'll get. see some people with those. I think we have all the A-team merchandise in our <laughs> office. Everyone has got one. That so, was a movie where they flew in a tank. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and you would have been the you would have been the villain in the in the sequel if that had happened. Is that I right? Yes, I don't know. That was a weird thing because uh, I'm friends with Brad Cooper, who I've known for a million years, and uh, back to actually Wet Hot American Summer, believe it or not, and. Uh, I happened to be up in Vancouver shooting another film, and I had dinner with Brad and uh, Joe Carnahan and, and uh, Charlto and a bunch of folks, just because we're in the same city. And uh, they were like, "Hey, do you want to want to be in the movie?" And I was like, <laughs> "What's the part?" And they said, "Well, we haven't written it yet." I'm like, "Wait, aren't you almost done shooting?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, but but yeah, you should be. Oh, it's a great part. It's gonna be great." And I'm like. Sure. All right. <laughs> a free weekend, and uh, and I did. It was awesome. Got to meet Liam and 
everybody and it was super cool it's a cool scene yeah there's something I've always wondered we're we're big Anchorman fans here and your name appears in the film Anchorman Aha, on a screen sharp eyed viewers yeah so along with Adam Scott's can you can you explain that? That, what that's about it was all a big angle to get into the sequel <laughs> uh, no. are you in the sequel um who knows? <laughs> um, the the reason that is, it's uh, whenever you put any name on a screen, you have to get it cleared legally. Uh, you can't say like Barack Obama. You know, you can't because there are people that have that name, and, and you need to get their permission. So that you get a lot of John Smith and you know, whatever. Uh, so when they were running the credit sequence, almost all of those people are people who somebody in the production knows. And in that case, one of the producers, both Adam and I are very good friends with Paul Rudd and uh, have known Paul for a million years. And so uh, they basically said, we're putting you in the credits because we want to use your name. So you're, you're clearing it now. And they <laughs> said, all right, fine. And it's funny because no one knew who Adam or I was back then. And now people do and it's kind of a funny little easter egg for, for people to find very very well uh, <laughs> observed though but you would like to be in the sequel oh god yeah right <laughs> it's gonna be hilarious <laughs> I can't believe they're doing it I can't believe they got everybody to do it it's great I, I talked to Paul recently and he told me that, that it was happening and I was like holy shit that's awesome <laughs> you're obviously in with a lot of the American comedians but you're also a fan of British comedy right you like Brass very much I, so yeah Alan very Partridge. much so yeah I, I got turned on to the uh Chris Morris world quite a few years ago and then the wonder of YouTube uh, was insane and, and, and I probably lost about a week of my life to just <laughs> clicking various versions of either Brass Eye or Jam or, um, or Day to Day <laughs> and, uh, and then going down that rabbit hole and then becoming friends with uh, Bill Hader who's very close to the Nick Frost Simon Pegg world of of, oh, of course yeah of uh, of that side of it and then going down that rabbit hole of of Garth Marenghi and all that craziness <laughs> cool. I, I it's it's great and and, and it's kind of a, a a great thing that we have now with with YouTube and Hulu and whatever like mm. you you're not kind of pinned down to whatever you can get on your terrestrial box you can go anywhere and there's there's just so much hilarious stuff out there that's great you know you're not you're not stuck watching some bullshit thing that you don't like you get to you get to find new stuff it kind of seems like a bit of a tv golden age at the moment i mean u.s comedy is in a, in a brilliant situation as well with you know community always sunny in philadelphia you know all of these shows that they're incredible and then you know obviously mad men on the on the dramatic side and all the work that hbo is doing is it yeah i, I think you're right i think uh i think what's ended up happening is um with the proliferation of outlets, mm. uh, whether it's you know HBO, AMC, Sky, BBC Four, all these crazy uh, variations of of uh, you know places to put content, yeah. uh, and now like Netflix and mm. and and even you know the sort of on demand providers, you're getting stuff that would have never seen the light of day always sunny is a great example yeah. no one would make that show <laughs> or louis honestly i yeah. don't know if you guys get louis over here but uh, uh louis ck basically who i think is a comic voice got to make his show on fx because he could make it for nothing and he writes it and produces it and directs it and does everything and it's mm. one man's vision and it's fucking brilliant mm. uh but there's there's a million places to kind of put that out and back 
15, 20 years ago, there were like five places. And so it had to appeal by necessity to a broader spectrum. Now there are these unique little pieces that you can go and you can watch your funny shows and mm-hmm. you can and you can laugh and you can tell your friends to watch and they'll and they'll enjoy it as well. And yeah, I think it is a, a kind of television uh, renaissance in mm-hmm. many ways and it's it's leading to much more specific, much more exciting uh, things that's that are for everyone, you know, and, and that, that includes things that I don't give a shit about, <laughs> um, honestly. But there are people that really want to watch, uh, you know, whether it's Jersey Shore or fill in the blank. Hey, God bless, you know. What? And, and you're, you're, I mean, you're the heart of it, really, with Mad Men. I mean, that's that's one of I the take key all words. the credit yeah. for uh, <laughs> the television renaissance of the of the early 21st century. It's completely my my doing. Well, I mean, Don Don Draper. That's you know, that's 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 a gift, isn't it? That's the role of that is the role of the lifetime, isn't it? I, uh, I I I couldn't put it better. It really is. It is a uh, remarkable uh, thing to be a part of, and I daily. Uh, pinch myself because uh, it has given me the opportunity to do everything else including sit in this room mm. uh, which I love honestly uh, I've, I've, it's done, a good room. I've done it since it's a great room <laughs> yeah. it really is a nice microphone yeah. uh, <laughs> the microphone smells like heaven <laughs> um, and, and, and honestly like you know since I've stood on a stage when I was five years old in first grade with a hand-sewn costume on it's something that I've wanted to do and uh, to get the opportunity to do it not only do sort of my day job be Don Draper and be in a show that's in rarefied air honestly uh, and something that I'm incredibly proud of Um, but also to get to be on you know stage on in studio 8H and and do that and and be in films and produce films and, and come over here and work on projects it's it's the dream and it's uh, exciting and honestly, you know, mind-blowing. Hmm. I, I have an observation about you, John, which I'd like to share. <laughs> oh, God. Is it the fact that I'm not wearing pants? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry gonna, about that. I wasn't going to bring that up. It's just warm in here. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. No, uh, we, we, we can all take our pants off. That's fine. Um, oh, it's, it's that, that you seem unafraid of roles that, that utilise your, your looks for comedic purposes. I'm thinking Drew in 30 Rock, Ted in Bridesmaids, and Sergio. We love Sergio. Yes. <laughs> Did you see the return of Sergio, by the uh, way? No, he he no, came back no. recently in the, no. uh, in the 100th digital short. Ah. I, got to, uh, to, I got to stick my crotch in Justin Bieber's face. <laughs> Excellent. Finally. <laughs> the dream of so many people. Um, uh, yeah, check that out. It's worthwhile. <laughs> okay. I think... Because looks, and I'm putting those in air quotes for those you, of you, you don't at home, are such a subjective, ridiculous uh, thing that why not make fun of them? Yeah, you know it's it's uh, it's certainly ephemeral, hmm. uh, and uh, and it's subjective. As I said, like you know, one somebody can say that's that person's good looking, and another person can go, I don't get it, and. Hmm. And I certainly feel that way. And if I'm all for uh, a joke, and uh, when Robert Carlock and Tina Fey asked me to be a part of 30 Rock, I was like, again, yes, I will do whatever you want me to do. Mm -hmm. That has included uh, 
having hooks for hands, <laughs> having a African American hand, having a lady hand, uh, playing a very racist stereotype, mm-hmm. and uh, and and all versions in between. Hmm. So. Um, <laughs> you know, be careful what you wish for, I guess. <laughs> but uh, but it's fun and it's funny, and I think uh, if if you if you if you go into any comedic, Tina is a perfect example, as mm. is Kristen. But Tina uh, is a perfect example of someone who is incredibly attractive, mm-hmm. uh, but is has no qualms about making herself look absolutely ridiculous for a laugh which is the point we're trying to make people laugh and uh, she's super good at it and for more John Hamm there's an interview with him in the new issue of a very popular film magazine whose name should be obvious by now no not not that one no not that one either it's it's this one it's us it's Empire obviously Uh, and Ollie you did that didn't you I did how was he he was great. I came out of that room feeling very unhandsome. <laughs> I'm also very uncharming. Did you walk into it feeling handsome? No, not not particularly, but I definitely felt less so when I left. <laughs> for the uh, video uh, interviews he did for Friends with Kids when he was round, my friend Katie did the first interview of the day, and the thing he signed off with was, you never forget your first time, do you, Katie? Gave her a <laughs> wink. Her knees buckled. <laughs> he is a lovely, lovely man. Yeah, he was very, very funny. He's like, you, very should, fun. you should really hate him, but... Yeah, given he's very good looking and talented and stuff, but he's just a really nice guy. He pretty much makes it impossible by being incredibly self deprecating and modest and generally down to earth. Is there anything he can't do? Did he did he I rescue any know. sick puppies when he was here? He 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 actually, you know, touched a sick puppy and it spontaneously got better. <laughs> he saved me from drowning. <laughs> really? Uh, okay, moving on to a very brief excerpt from an interview we did with the amazing spider producers Matt Tolmack and Avi Arad about the latest incarnation of your friendly neighbourhood What's It. The full interview, which goes into heavy spoiler territory, will be up on Tuesday, July 3rd, along with a full spoiler review from Team Empire, so you won't have long to wait for that amazing spider spoiler cast. But here's a taste of what Matt and Avi had to say to myself and James Dyer. It strikes me with this one that you, you do have a secret weapon kind of in the form of Andrew Garfield, who, uh, yeah. to my mind, I think embodied Peter Parker in a way that, you know, don't, no disrespect to Toby Maguire, but no one has ever really done yeah. before. Yeah. I mean, at, at what stage did you realise that, you know, I mean, was it the casting stage when you made that decision? Because that's not something you would have gone into lightly. Casting was, was I mean, we always say it, is the, was the, the well, scariest moment, yeah, exactly. if there was one, because, you know, we had a great story to tell, mm. and we had a director we loved, and we feel pretty good about ourselves and the studios behind us and you know you have all the pieces in place um who's peter parker you know that's 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 that is that's the the center of the whole thing of the movie and if you didn't find that what are you going to do and uh you know there was this moment where we you know we were really lucky i mean it's not a surprise that there are a lot of really talented actors who would, would have loved to have played this part and so there, you know, I, I was at the studio at the time, but there were, uh, you know, a zillion really talented people auditioning for the role. Um, and it's, but it comes down to that moment where you, you know, you look at somebody's audition, in this case, Andrew, um, and it, he was Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just embodied him, you know, with his lanky, long, you know, body, his physique and his wry wit and his intensity, his intelligence and, you know, and, it just... And charm incredibly charming plus he has amazing hair 
he has the best hair in the world. I look at it yeah. as someone who has, I suffer from bad hair. You guys have no hair. Yeah. I just suffer from dry head. And I see him Garfield every day. It's like this, it's all like fluffy and lay. It's fantastic. Like L'Oreal. Yeah. Well, okay, so you figured it out. It was the hair. <laughs> okay, let's start our reviews of the week's films. Now, I sent eight at the very beginning. There are actually 10 films worthy of discussion this week. We're not going to discuss 10 films because we're already probably past the two-hour mark in this podcast and we have to bring it in home at some point. So we're going to discuss five in detail and then skim over the rest. Uh, let's start off with a brief look at The Amazing Spider-Man. You know the story by now. Boy meets spider, spider bites boy, boy becomes spider boy. Well, that's what The Amazing Spider-Man wants you to think anyway. Well, it's actually a neat reboot of the classic tale, isn't it, Helen? Yes, it is. Um, uh, first of all, I think great, great casting of this movie. So you've got Andrew Garfield as an improbably bouffant uh, Peter Parker uh, Spider-Man, uh, Emma Stone as uh, Gwen Stacy, who is not only you know head of the class and uh, the object of his interest, but also the daughter of the chief of police mm-hmm. and also you know assistant to uh, scientist Kurt Connors, played by Reese Fans. And you've then got like Martin Sheen and Sally Field as as. Uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Uh, I think the main criticism people had about this movie before we saw it was why? Why bother? Yes, and I'll be honest, I still feel a little bit that way. Um, I think this is a really good film, um, but it doesn't particularly, you know, do anything that massively different to what you know Sam Raimi did a few just a few years ago. Um, but I don't kind of begrudge its existence. You know, if if someone had asked me, do you want to see a new Spider-Man movie? I would have been like, yeah. But now that it's here, you know, it's nice. It's good. It's it's well put together. Brilliantly acted. Um, I think Mark Webb, the director, does a really good job with with especially the human scenes. But there are some nice action bits in there as well. I, I didn't have a problem with it being rebooted at all. I don't I don't remember ever thinking, oh, I've seen this before. So the kind of restarting the story didn't didn't bother me at all I agree with Helen that the I think the non-Spider-Man bits are stronger mm. it doesn't feel like Mark Webb is as into Spider-Man as a character as he is into Peter Parker yeah I agree and I did feel a bit that it didn't have an identity like you know in the way that you can you can describe a Tim Burton Batman a, a Christopher Nolan Batman or a Sam Raimi Spider-Man I'm not sure I could nail what uh, Mark Webb's take is on Spider-Man I thought it was promising. It was a good start. Yeah. Helen and I discussed mm. this the other day, and I feel like it's a bit like the first X-Men, mm-hmm. where there are a lot of things wrong with it, uh, but there are a lot of things really right with it. Uh, and it makes me want to see what he'll do next. We gave it three stars as a magazine, which is a recommendation. It's a really solid, really good blockbuster. And uh, you know, like you say, Ollie, it does a lot of things right. And one of the things it does right is casting and tone. Um, and I love the Sam Raimi movies with, with the possible exception of Spider-Man 3 um, which still has some great virtuoso moments in it but there's something about the, the the tone I mean Sam was so very committed to the, 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 the cheesiness of Spider-Man that sometimes it was a little overly cheesy um, and Webb dials it back a little bit more he makes it more grounded, much mm. more realistic Andrew Garfield's a much more realistic uh, Peter Parker, uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May who were very annoying at times in, in, in the first ones, particularly Aunt May, feel r- real 
in this one. Uh, it's a, a real casting masterstroke. Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben. Yeah. Immediately you have 100 Martin Sheen points. So therefore you don't really have to work so hard to make people think that this guy is really decent. And Sally Field does well because she's not as hectoring as the first Aunt May. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And I do think it, that the tone is in some ways a lot better. But then there are also scenes that really stuck out to me as a bit wrong. Um, and I think some of those, are, some of the early Spider-Man scenes feel un-Spider-Man-y to me. Also, well, they felt to me as well a bit rushed. Mm, I agree. Yes. Like the movie was trying to rush through the Spider-Man stuff to get to what it was really interested in, which it, was In Peter a movie Parker. that's two and a half hours long, if not two and 40 minutes, I might be yes. wrong there. Two, it's two, two about two hours and ten. It's two, yeah. two, two, two hours, two, two, fifteen. Okay, there you go. It's a long film. So the bits where I love in the first Spider-Man, my favourite bit of the first Spider-Man is when he's drawing the Spider-Man costume and he's coming up with the ideas. That montage in this film, as you say, feels rushed. I feel like, oh, don't, don't, I'm enjoying this. Well, interesting enough, the um, the CG POV sequence that got a lot of flack when it was first debuted because, uh, you know, Mark Webb and you know, uh, Matt Tomac and Avi Arad and, and the late Laura Siskin, he also produced, had made a great point of saying that a lot of this was going to be achieved practically and a lot of it is achieved practically yeah. I mean and some of the Spider-Man stuff is just fantastic and mm. you can tell it was done practically and they were swinging on massive rigs through the streets of New York and it looks absolutely amazing but having said all that then they came out with this CG POV sequence for the, the first teaser trailer which was Spider-Man swinging through the streets of New York and then he jumps onto the side of a skyscraper it got a little bit of flack but I would actually have liked to have seen that sequence in full on the big screen and really get that, that rush, that feeling that you're actually inside Spider-Man's head. And it's truncated. Yeah. If you look at the sequence in the movie, it's it's cut down. Oh, they, I think they, they made a good choice there because I think in the trailer like, it did look terrible. It looked like a computer game. Mm. But, but in here it works well. And there's some there's something I really liked in this was that they showed Spider-Man at night. And I don't really remember that much in the Sam Raimi one. So swinging through uh, New York at night looks incredible. Yeah. And it, it looks does. so it looks much better than during the daytime. All yeah. I, I may be wrong, but from the Sam Raimi ones, I remember a lot more at dusk. In three, there's a good uh, night scene between the young Green Goblin and. Okay. Anyway, but in this, it was just it was noticeably beautiful. Yeah, I think I think were. sometimes that I really really like this film. Um, for me, it's on a par with the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, better than Spider-Man three, and not as good as Spider-Man two, which is one of the great comic book movies. And for me, this this movie does a couple of things with its action sequences. I mean, we, you say that Webb doesn't seem as interested or invested mm-hmm. in the Spider-Man versus Lizard scenes. They feel a little bit rote and a little bit generic. Yeah. But what it does is do something which I don't think Sam Raimi really attempted with Spider-Man, which is try and actually generate suspense. There's a really good sequence in... Um, I don't want to give too much away in this one, but there's a really good sequence in the sewers when Spider-Man is tracking the lizard and uh, he sits on a, a web that he generates. And I thought it was really suspenseful for the first time we had a really, really yeah. interesting face-off between hero and villain. There's it was al- literally suspenseful. Oh, wow. Sorry. There's also a great bit, again, without giving anything away, but with Gwen Stacy in a cupboard, which was very much like Halloween. Which I th- and I thought was great that she's standing there waiting for something to happen and trying to hide. Yeah. I, that was really suspenseful. I loved that yeah. bit. I, I thought she was fantastic. Yeah. Going back to the Emma Stone love in, yeah. uh, she's, she's great. Uh, speaking about the lizard, I think if there was a, a direct thing that people could point at, I didn't think the lizard looked all that good, uh, personally. I, I don't know, I didn't quite buy into him as a, as a villain, yeah. generally. He was a bit Voldemort in need of a facial scrub, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy the fact that he spoke so eloquently as a lizard. That was something that I enjoyed about that. Well, I love that, you know, the lizard is actually um, Avia Rad's favourite Spider-Man character, and he's, they were building towards a lizard in the Sam Raimi movies. Uh, Dylan Baker was Kurt Connors in 2 and 3. So I'm, I'm not surprised that they, they had him in this movie. And Risa fans is fine. 
Mm. Sorry, 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 Reese Evans, I believe, is actually pronounced his name because someone I apologize. Someone took uh, exception to our pronunciation of his name. In fact, everyone pronounces his name Reese Evans, and he never corrects you. So maybe he, maybe that's the way he pronounces it. I don't think that it's a problem with the lizard as a character or a villain in it. I think it's when you do an all CG character, it's always yeah. going to be difficult if you're going to show them up close. And sometimes it looks great, sometimes it doesn't. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. Like I say, three stars for Amazing Spider-Man, and we liked it a lot. So go and see that on the biggest screen you can find. Maybe one of those Limaxes we were talking about so much. Now, normally when a huge movie opens, distributors move the hell out of its way, which isn't the case with The Amazing Spider-Man, interestingly enough. Uh, June 29th is Jock-a-Block with other movies opening, I guess, a few days before Spider-Man to try and get some cash in. Let's get the first one out of the way. It's Friends with Kids, written and directed by Jennifer Westfeld, who, as we referred to earlier on, is John Hamm's partner, but she's also the star of this movie, along with Yes, Mr. Ham, Adam Scott, Chris O'Dowd, Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, and Megan Fox. It's been dubbed in some quarters as this year's Bridesmaids, but it's not really that, is it? No, apart from the overlap of most of the cast. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's... it's. I mean, Jennifer Westfeld before wrote and starred in um, a film called Kissing Jessica Stein, which was about people who got so fed up of the New York dating scene, two, two straight women who got so fed up of the New York dating scene that they tried dating each other. Um, which was actually a really smart, very offbeat kind of a rom-com. This one, I think, is in the same territory. It's, again, taking a slightly offbeat approach to love, being so fed up with the dating scene that you decide to have a, have a baby with a friend, in this case, Adam Scott's character. But it isn't quite as, as smart, it isn't quite as well pulled together, and, and it's funny, but it sort of loses its way a few times as it kind of meanders towards its conclusion. Because I think she said even herself when she was writing it that the first half she wrote very quickly, it was very much a comedy, and then the second half, she decided that there had to be a bit of drama in there. She got kind of stuck. And when she came back to it, she realized what was missing was, you know, it had to, things couldn't quite carry on the way they, they had started. And so there is a little bit of a disjoint there in the middle. It does get a bit more serious for a while. But, you know, obviously a great cast. You've got um, Chris O'Dowd and Maya Rudolph as one couple. And then um, John Hamm, Chris Wake as another. And their relationships basically come under a lot of pressure when they have kids. Whereas the other two, at least initially, you know, as only friends, they seem to have a much easier time of it. What I quite like about this is that it doesn't come down in any way on which is the right way to live, which a lot of these films can, which uh, if you look at what to expect when you're expecting, which I think is absolutely the wrong way yes. to tell this kind of story, which was having children is wonderful, it's all, it's all, it can be painful to begin with, but then it's marvellous. This is, this is very much, this is showing lots of different sides, what it's like to have kids. And also, if you decide not to, that can be brilliant too. So it has Megan Fox, who turns up as one of Adam Scott's uh, girlfriends, who has decided that she's absolutely not going to have kids. And she's not pictured as this terrible, sad, barren woman who's going to have a miserable life. She has a fantastic life and has just decided not to. But I think it's really good at painting all these different relationships, which actually ring very true. It does fall into some kind of rom-com cliches towards the end. It gets mm. on that kind of track and I don't think it, it doesn't get off it and ends a little bit obviously yes but I think it's really interesting along the way it's very smartly observed there's some really good scenes in there there's a great dinner scene which uh, John Hamm doesn't come out well of I mean he his didn't. character doesn't as an actor but he comes out very well but that's why he took that character yes exactly so, you know, exactly because it had the best speech and was a complete <laughs> bastard but there's some really <laughs> interesting stuff it's like really um, I think it's really nicely written it's, it's, it's nothing like Bridesmaids I don't know where that comparison's come from I guess like it's the, the cast. cast okay but the, the comedy is not in any way 
similar no. at all. It is it is much more like her her previous writing. I think uh, you know it's it's very much kind of her style of kind of observational rom com, yeah. if you will. Um, and no, I'd, I'd I'd agree with all of that. I think uh, th- there was a little bit of judgment for me in in how easy, at least initially, it is for Westfeld and Scott's characters to have this baby and get through it so ridiculously beautiful i think they they overplay the the contrast between their dream life yeah. uh, as as separate parents and their parent and their friends having these nightmarish experiences with their children so that's a little bit over egged but it is for comic value so you can kind of let them away yeah. with that um but yeah so so good we gave it three stars um but maybe not quite you know the greatest we had uh, we had emily blunt on last week's podcast uh, she was in to talk about the five year engagement but she also has another movie out this week which is frankly just greedy uh, Your Sister's Sister is an entirely improvised indie film from Mumblecore queen Lynn Shelton in which Blunt plays a woman who invites a man to her remote cabin to get over the death of his brother and that man is played by Mark Duplass one of the Duplass brothers again Mumblecore kings uh, Lair a romantic entanglement with her sister and all manner of emotional complications ensues 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 what was this one like, Ali? It was good. I enjoyed it a lot. It is almost exactly what you expect it to be, which is that kind of indie made for four pints and a packet of crisps, small, almost play-like comedy, which is uh, contrived, to say the least. Essentially, the construct is that there is a best friendship uh, between Emily Blunt's character and Mark Duplass's character, except for the fact that um, there is a, a dead brother in the background. Mark Duplass's brother has died and used to be married, uh, if not married, uh, going out with Emily Blunt's character. And though they obviously have a connection, there is a barrier there, naturally. Uh, there's also Emily Blunt's half-sister, who's Hannah, she's called, um, and she is a lesbian, and she is also, as it turns out, in this shack uh, that they go to, this house in the country. And, of course, these three get involved with each other. Secrets are revealed. Comments are made. And it's both sweet and charming and, at times, a little bit, really, you went there. Uh, but, <laughs> but all in all, it's actually pretty enjoyable. If you if you like this kind of film, and I hope I've described it in a meandering but vaguely understandable way, it's quite gentle. Um, it's It's quite indie flick but there's stuff to enjoy there there's lots of very nicely observed moments it's uh, improvised almost entirely it's one of those here's the scene go nuts uh, movies and some really nice stuff comes out also I love the fact that they took Emily Blunt and said look we're going to write the construct so that you are English you're not going to have to pretend to be American and nor is it just going to be your English and we don't talk about it um, and that's and that's nice I like how uh, the reviewer for the magazine um, Damo said it was sweet but not earth shattering and I think that's fair uh, I think you should go and see if you're curious about this kind of movie. We don't always expect earth-shattering. Sometimes sweet is fine. It's, it's a lot to expect. It is a lot to it expect. It is, yeah. I find. And it's from the director of Hump Day, uh, Lynn Shelton. So if you enjoyed Hump Day, you'll get a good kick out of this too. Absolutely. And we gave this what? Three whole stars. Three whole English stars. So there you go. It's the that week of again. three stars, isn't it? It is, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but there you go. Uh, and speaking of three-star films, uh, we also had Noel Clark on last week. Uh, he was talking about his unashamedly gory Brit B movie, Storage 24, in which a group of people trapped in a storage warehouse come up against a ravenous alien menace. Now, on the podcast last week, he said he wants us to do for storage warehouses what Jaws did for the beach. <laughs> now, I can't quite see so many people going to Safe Store as they might do to Brighton, 
But will it, uh, Helen? Will it put the willies up people trying to store their, their beds and stuff? Well, I think it might because those are, you know, cavernous, empty, echoing, strange, weird places anyway. So, Enough you know, my head. Hey. Uh, so it it might uh, make people a little bit nervous. But no, it's it's an, it's a nice concept. Um, a cargo plane carrying something crashes over London. Meanwhile, Noah Clark and friends are trying to empty out a storage uh, unit, whatever you call it, um, and are mostly oblivious until they find that, you know, it's all locked down and dun, something dun, dun, is in dun. there with them. No way. Seriously. No. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very much inspired by Alien. You know, he, he's been completely upfront about that. You can see it in the sort of, you know, endless passages and, and so on that feature in the film um, and the sense of kind of claustrophobia that he does very successfully get into it. Um, uh, yeah, decent uh, film generally. Characters maybe not quite as memorable as as you would like, you know, to, to kind of really elevate it out of the genre. Yeah. But, but perfectly decent. And how's Noel Clark himself? Because this is uh, uh, another film, I mean, following on from Fast Girls, that he wrote, produced, and stars in. Yeah. He's a busy, busy man. But he it, is. How is he? Is this one a little more of a, a Noel Clark parade than, than Fast Girls was? <laughs> yeah, he gets. I think he gives himself a bit more to do than he did in Fast Girls. But yeah, it's. The um, rugged hero, so to speak. Yeah, but he's kind of. He's quite sympathetic. You know, you. you um, it's it's him and his his ex girlfriend who has dumped him basically who he's still helping out and he's so he's a bit of a kind of sad sack to begin with and so there's a little a little bit of an arc there yeah to uh, to kind of to, between that and the end a Noel arc a Noel arc if you will yes. there we go uh, so again three stars for that one from it the, is the week of three stars from the great Kim Newman we should get Kim in the podcast that would be nice Kim and Damon on the podcast would be would be I don't think any of us would survive it to be honest but uh, four hours later <laughs> who knows maybe one day uh, we're still not done. I think that's what how many films is that down now four 18 two yeah. uh, people are still making films to release this week we've still got time <laughs> we can discuss more uh, for now we're going to talk about William Friedkin's extraordinarily dark and funny Killer Joe in which Matthew McConaughey's career re- renaissance or I was going to say reconnaissance uh, continues as a hitman hired by a white trash family including Emil Hirsch and Thomas Hayden Church to bump off their mum and it gets much darker and much more chickeny before too long <laughs> Helen uh, what did you make of this one this is this is a weird film. I'm still not entirely sure how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was good. <laughs> film criticism 101, people. <laughs> no, honestly, I, I did think it was good. Great performances. Um, it's one of those stories about a group of almost entirely unlikable people, um, yeah. you know, are doing horrible things to each other. Um, so be warned before you go in. Don't, you know, go into this expecting something fluffy. There's pretty much nothing. The only fluffy thing in it is Juno Temple's hair. Um, and even she, you know, toughens up as the film goes along. She certainly does. Uh, I really like this film. It's uh, it's extraordinarily dark. Uh, it's really it's, dark. It's meant to be, uh, it is a black comedy. Yes. There are moments, uh, things happen in this film. Uh, go to the William Friedkin uh, chat for a more spoiler-filled uh deconstruction of the movie I guess we'll talk about some of the scenes one in particular which really really stands out there are moments in this film you can't believe you've just seen what you've seen yes and um, it feels it feels like a throwback in a way to almost a, it's almost blue velvety in some ways there are, there are moments where it feels like one of those great John Dahl uh, late in the film noirs from the from the 80s and 90s like Red Rock West or mm. The Last Seduction it feels like that um uh, it's got this incredibly weird dream logic to it at times. Yes, uh, and dream it, logic is the is yeah. the phrase actually, yeah. and it is very, very, 
very darkly funny. Uh, and Matthew McConaughey is fantastic. He's, He's Killer Joe, completely immoral yeah. uh, cop turned hitman. Um, and uh, he he goes to places here, and so does Juno Temple. To be fair, who's this great br- young British actress who's playing you know deep South trader trashness, very brave, very exposed. If you know what I mean, in in this role, and it, she she goes to places that I don't think many young actresses would have done. Um, and McConaughey goes there with her. Yeah, um, I think people have been a bit disturbed about how young she looks, and, and accuse the film of sort of paedophilia and stuff, which I don't think it is. I think she's she's definitely meant to be an adult. Yes, and their first seduction scene is very unnerving. It's very yes, it is. It's 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 weirdly played, and you're not quite sure how either of them feels about it. In some well, there, ways. there have been people who reported it as a rape scene, but they've been very much definite. Juno Temple, particularly, that this is not a rape. Yeah, scene. she's been very clear on that, and I think. I think actually I didn't get that from it. Um, no, it it feels intensely uncomfortable to watch, but I don't think that makes it um, a rape scene. It's unconventional. Uh, unconventional to say shall the we least. Say. And um, and seriously, you know, choose your fast food on the way to this film carefully. Um, maybe avoid chicken. I'm just saying. Absolutely, or indeed any food at all. I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, Friedkin's bug was was uh, equally dark and equally sordid, and also based on a Tracy Let's play. Uh, and that was from a few years ago and he's 76 now and I think he's still churning out movies that are as vital as and I'm not saying they're as great as The French Connection or The Exorcist or Sorcerer or To Live and Die in LA but are certainly as interesting Definitely. and uh, they have an energy that you don't really expect from a man of his age and then you meet the man and you realise oh yeah okay that's why um uh, Helen, we're also going to discuss... Uh, I was going to relegate this one to the brief mention category, but let's talk about it in a little bit more detail. It's Joyful Noise, which is a the gospel musical which stars Queen Latifah and Dolly Parton. Yep. And uh, I, I'm led to believe it is exactly like you, you expect a movie of that description to be. Yeah, it kind of is. Um, when I went to see this, there were a bunch of us talking about it afterwards, and we decided it was basically burlesque for churchgoers. Um, in the sense <laughs> stripping that, in church. In the sense that it is, by any rational standard, incredibly bad, but at the same time, it's incredibly entertaining at times. Um, so yeah, basically, uh, Dolly Parton is married to Chris Christopherson, who dies in the first few minutes of a no! heart attack. Um, he's the director of the choir. She thinks she should have the job. But instead, the pastor, Courtney B. Vance, gives it to Queen Latifah, who has her own problems because her daughter, Kiki Palmer, is, is young and she's trying to keep her on the straight and narrow and she's got a, a sort of autistic son. And then Dolly Parton's grandson comes to visit and he's got a, all these new ideas for the choir, which Dolly totally supports and Queen Latifah totally doesn't. And he's got his eye on Kiki Palmer. No! And it's all very complicated. And there's all this sort of, you know, meta commentary about how poor the town is and how the gospel choir is their only hope and how they really want to win the big gospel competition that's coming up. So, you know, there's a a heck of a lot going on um, and some of it is incredibly hokey. There are uh, songs every five minutes, pretty much, including a duet with Chris Christopherson's Ghost. Really? I'm not even kidding. I'm sorry, this is a great story. Um, uh, who, who's the duet with Christopherson and with, with, with Dolly Parton that's amazing yeah and um, and then it all you know comes Except down with to the Dolly big Parton, competition it's a, it's a triplet and uh, yeah Thanks, ladies. basically <laughs> it all builds up to the big competition which turns into a rerun of the finale of Sister Act 2 so if you've seen that they have actually done exactly the, the finale so of Sister what, Act what sort of songs are we talking here are we talking ex- existing songs or is this a brand new musical with brand new songs uh, it's mostly kind of I believe existing songs but I, to be honest I wasn't familiar with with most of them because I'm not a big gospel church goer. You're a heathen, Helena. Yeah. A heathen. What would you give? What would you give this one? 
Um, I, I think I guess a two, uh, what three. Do, what, what do we give it? Two or three. <laughs> <laughs> and if that isn't recommendation, then I don't know what is. Um, you also saw this week the Stellan Skarsgård film. He was in, after all, mm-hmm. uh, The King of Devil's Island. What's uh, what's that like? Yeah, this is actually a very good film. It's um, about a, a sort of a delinquent boy's home, I guess, in early 20th century Norway. He plays the warden of the home. And uh, basically, it kind of focuses on one, on one new boy who, who arrives at the home and kind of doesn't want to be there obviously none of them do but he particularly kind of pushes back against the system and when um one of the the kind of the guards or one of the heads of house uh, starts abusing one of the other boys this guy really kind of stands up against the system and so does the previously blameless kind of head boy if you will of this establishment and the two of them essentially end up you know leading a bit of a revolt against Skarsgård's character who just refuses to do anything about it can't believe that, that mm. such a thing could go on so it's uh, it's brilliantly acted it's kind of a really slow build up to this you know this kind of, of tension and violence the whole way through um, but but really really well put together I think absolutely worth a look and how's uh, Uncle Stellan he's terrific he's not actually in it that much it's a very small role really he's kind of more the supporting character it's the the young boys in particular um, one of which won a sort of Scandinavian Oscar for his for his supporting role um, but you know just really good performances all round what are the Scandinavian Oscars called the Oscars <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with what he said. Let's go with that one indeed. Uh, also out this week and sadly relegated to the brief mention category, uh, Blair Witch director Eduardo Sanchez returns to horror with Lovely Molly and we haven't even begun to mention the discreet charms of Todd Salon's Dark Horse and the big re-release of the week, the discreet charms of the bourgeoisie. Where's Phil Simley when you need him? Uh, but that is it. What a week. I can't believe we got through that's the most bumper week we've ever had and the most bumper podcast we've ever had and don't forget the two special podcasts going up this week the William Freakin interview and Tuesday's special spider spoiler cast next week we're going to have the amazing Bobcat Bobcat Goldthwaite in here to talk about his new movie God Bless America and we reckon if you know your Bobcat Goldthwaite that that interview will be worth its weight in gold and as usual we'll have all sorts of film blather and nonsense until then it is goodbye from Helen goodbye that was fairly sinister uh, goodbye from oh um, Ali goodbye <laughs> goodbye from Ollie goodbye and goodbye from me goodbye